Okay, let's get straight to it. Pushing Rubber Podcast, episode 141. Um, this is Adam Piggott coming to you from Holland on King's Day, Konensdag, which is the big national holiday in Holland. It's a beautiful day um, and the lockdown hasn't been anywhere close. Basically in Holland, you can more or less go around and do what you want if you're by yourself. Um, if there's, I think, in three or more, there's more rules on it. But uh, um, I, I predict a fair few people being out and about today. Um, and surely this madness has to end soon um, of this whole ridiculous coronavirus shutdown. I, I can't get into all of the, you know, the <coughs> theoretical... Um, I don't like calling them conspiracy theories because that's that's a conundrum because you know so much of that sort of stuff turns out to be factual. Um, but on that line, I yeah, there could be many many reasons for all of this stuff to be happening in the way it is. But because so little is really known, I find it beyond useless to ponder whether out loud or in writing form of it could be this or it could be that or, you know, are they doing this for this reason? I note the Australian government released their uh, individual person tracking app today and apparently a million people, a million Australians downloaded it. Um, now, of course, I'm not an individual who'd ever use a, a personal tracking app, um, even if it was forced upon me in a legal sense. Um, but one million people in Australia is less than 5% of the population for a start. Um, and I predict a fair few of those numbers are public servants who I'm assuming, though I could be wrong on this, I, I can't be bothered doing the research on it, I'm assuming they might need to, uh, they might be forced to do it because they work for the government. Um, so 5% of the population really isn't that much. Um, also, I wonder how, what percentage of, the percentage of people who actually downloaded the app, oh, and by the way, you know, is, is that one million number accurate? What, what a handy number, one million. Is that one million and one, or 999,999? Yeah, whether that's accurate or not. Um, what percentage of the people who downloaded the app are actual Australians as opposed to un-Australians? In other words, you know, immigrant imports. Uh, I would also be interested in that. Uh, the other thing about this is I've only ever been on one public protest in my life. It, it cured me of public protesting for all time. Uh, it was when I was 17, uh, my last year in high school. I think it was the last year in high school. And I did it because we basically took took the day off. So woohoo. Uh, and everyone else went in. And it was to protest. This is in 87 or 88. I can't remember which year it was. There was an attempt by the government, the Australian government at that time, to introduce a national identity card, which you had to have on you at all times. Um, 
when you were out and about in public. And there was a massive protest against this. And because the protest was so big, they backed off. And instead, they introduced a tax file number, <laughs> which was pretty much the same thing, except you don't have to have it on your person at all times. Um, but uh, I remember the, the the protest in Perth was quite violent. I remember people egging the car of the Premier at the time, Brian Burke, in front of Government House there. And I looked upon that, you know, and I was pretty close to where it happened. Uh, I saw it all firsthand. And, um, and I also felt the 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 disturbance in the crowd as being on like uh, a, a lemming style or one one organism where something would happen and then a ripple effect would come through and suddenly you'd find yourself reacting to it because everyone else was reacting to it and I found that very 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 unsettling indeed I did not like that at all I did not like that So that cured me of uh, protests for all time at an early age. So that was a good thing. Um, but you take that, uh, that resistance to authority that was present in Australia 30 years ago, um, and now everyone's downloading apps that are gonna track their movements and the government assures you that the data will not be used in a bad way even though you know, the only record they have of data is using it in a bad way. Um, and the only record they have of data is it being hacked. I had um, a couple of days ago some old friends. There's a group that we're all now spread around the world. I think someone's in London, someone's in Canada, someone's in Australia, someone's in New Zealand. I'm in the Netherlands. Uh, someone's in uh, Italy. Um, they suddenly had, let's have a, a Zoom drink all came up and everyone was like, yay, and I was just, I'm not downloading Zoom. You guys fucking nuts? Just, no. No, give my best to everyone. But no, I'm not doing it. Um, so, yeah, no, this this is all, anyway, this whole apps thing has come out about, obviously, the co, the, the Chinese pox. Um... And like I said, I don't really want to, you know, try and make assumptions and that sort of thing now. It's not, it's like the, the articles I wrote on this two or three weeks ago, you know, everyone's losing their mind. Um, especially people on the internet, on our side of the internet, you know, just, yeah. I am absolutely anti-authoritarian and, you know, definitely a non-conformist. Um, but in situations like this, I'll go back. I'm definitely a non-conformist and I will uh, frequently point out the hypocrisies, the inaccuracies, the, the fraudulent nature of, you know, um, the society in which we're currently dealing with. But in episodes like this, it's all happening so fast and changing so quickly and we are so insignificant in the general scheme of things that 
I find it best to just sit tight and observe while it's going on. I mean, think about if you were involved in the battle for Berlin in 1945. You're a, you're a microcosm flea here and the events are bigger than you. You need to sit tight and when the firing stops, then you can poke your head above the ground and have a look around and even then be a bit careful. So on at this time, in this moment, with what's going on, yeah, uh, I don't really feel that it's not that it's useful, it's not useful or not helpful to try and work out what's going on. It's that it's basically useless at this stage. It's basically useless. Um, the Great Ones put out a couple of really long linkage posts with all of this stuff. To, I'm just not reading any of it. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, and you know he's one of the ones who's you know brains melting down on this. But yeah, once again the events are bigger than we are. Nothing we can do right now is going to change it. And I find that. The more you run around frantically trying to work out what's going on or protesting about it or, you know, screaming at the sky, um, the less chance you actually have to perceive what's going on when you get a, a sliver of truth pop up. So this time I prefer, this is generally how I go because I always try and go against the flow. When everyone's, everything's cool and everyone thinks, man, just get along, that's when I'm really digging in and when I'm out there dropping my truth bombs. But when something like this is going down and everyone's out there screaming at the sky, that's when I pull my head in and just try and see if I can tap into what's happening, purely for myself. And I suppose my articles a few weeks ago on that, I think I wrote three articles on it, and since then, that was it, that was it. Um, I suppose that's basically what it's about in that regard. So for, for those who are wanting, you know, a bit more out of me in this time in that regard, I'm sorry, there's plenty more. There's plenty other mass hysteria uh, on the uh, on the internet on internet for um, for you to go out and sort that out for yourselves. Yeah. Uh, I think the most amusing thing, though, for me on this whole virus thing has been the claims um, by the blacks that the virus is a racist virus and targets them. Because they, at, at all times, they want special treatment based on their skin colour, which is hysterical. But if you think about what their supposed claims are uh, for discrimination based on skin colour, uh, the fact that the virus is uh, targeting black people more is because the virus targets people who are fat, obese, diabetic, pre-diabetic, have heart conditions. What can I tell you? Right. What image comes to mind when you think of fat, diabetic? people with heart conditions in America. Well, I think there's a few whiteys in there, but uh, 
Well, I was in Louisiana for a few months. I saw what was going on down there. I don't think I saw a single s slim... Yeah, I did see slim black women down there. They were the crack whores. Yeah. Yeah, they were the only slim black chicks I saw in Louisiana were crack whores, basically. So, uh, yeah. What can I tell you, racist virus? Um, what else? Uh, TikTok nurses. Uh, I spoke about them before. But the protesting nurses on TikTok who were standing with the masks on their faces in the uniforms with their arms folded as they, you know, authoritarianly stare out uh, into space or into, into, the, the, into the far distance as they, I don't know what they're supposed to be doing, but basically that's cured me. If ever I never wanted to go to a hospital before, I definitely do not want to go now for the rest of my life. If when I get some horrible disease, it's going to be finishing me off. There's no way I'm going to hospital. I'll just stock up on whiskey, cigars, pipe tobacco, and opiates, and uh, go out that way. If, if my if my last days are going to be spent being dictated by bitches like this, there's there's just no way. Absolutely no way in hell um what horrible i mean they must all i mean are all nurses sjw's basically yeah fucking hell um it's uh i mean the dancing videos were were were, were bad enough um But the, the TikTok nurses take it beyond the pale, so. But you know, we're seeing at this time what people are really like. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, let's go on to the meat of the show. The meat of the show. Uh, and uh, there's a couple of articles that I read this week. Um, the first was on Deep Strength. The guy at Deep Strength doesn't put up many pieces. Um, he uh, probably posts, I don't know, four or five times a month, maybe even, not even that. Uh, it's it's very very spotty, but I always keep an eye. I always keep an eye on what he's uh, what he's doing. Uh, and he wrote a post a few days ago. It's just a short one. Changes reveal weaknesses, um, and it's about how uh, well he says that one of the big things that he's seeing over this lockdown is that a lot of relationships. And marriages have gotten better and a lot have gotten worse and yeah you know that's uh, as it would be but his next um, paragraph is the one that kind of hit me uh, if the marriages were not I'm quoting here if the marriages were not built on a good foundation and just superficial things where you could put off issues like going to work or doing other things then they would have gotten worse 
they're spending a much greater amount of time with each other and it's revealing weaknesses that are being put off. They're more like roommates than married. Um, and, and when I read that, of course, I immediately thought about um, my own previous marriage that went down the toilet. And it hit me because that's what my relationship was. We were roommates that were married. Um, especially towards the end there. But even from the beginning... Even from the beginning, we were, um, and even though even though it's interesting because uh, my previous relationships where I'd lived with women, and uh, there'd been one where I lived with a woman for about uh, two and a half years or something like that. Um, when I got out of that one, I recognised, I identified myself that we were roommates having sex and wasting each other's time in a long-term point of view. And that's because everything was separate, particularly stuff like finances. I, I pressed it down on finances. Like my girlfriend, my Italian girlfriend, had her job, her bank accounts. I had my job, my bank accounts. We might have been sharing a house and the bills, but apart from that, it was all completely separate. So we weren't in any way, form or shape or form, committing to each other apart from roommates having sex. We were a couple, in inverted commas. So when that, and I, I ended that relationship. And, um, and I ended it for a number of reasons. But, but when I ended it, and because I ended it, I was able to think clearly. Um, and I, I identified that, you know, that was a big deal towards why it didn't work. So when I got together with the woman who became my ex-wife, and when I worked out quickly that this was someone who I wanted to be serious about, then once I popped the question to her, I said, we just have to have one bank account. All of our stuff has to be in it. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. Because I was determined not to repeat the same mistakes that I'd done in the past. So I was making progress. That was good. And I acted on it. But it wasn't enough. Because at the end, it was an economic relationship. Because that's what, what we based it on. We didn't base our marriage on God and family. We didn't have kids. Uh, we had stuff. And that's why my wife left me because the whole time she had been in the relationship as a rational point of view, as to an economic and social partnership. So that when 
she didn't need me as much as before, when she could get along fine in an economic and social sense without me, then there was no rational reason for her to stay. And then, of course, she rationalised her way out of the relationship. Because we didn't base it on family and we didn't base it on God. Now, a lot of other guys will base it on family. They'll have kids and it'll still go to shit as well. And then a lot of guys will pretend that they're basing it on God, but they won't because they're churchian and they still, the woman still runs rings around them in the house. So, in an age where anyone can cut and run whenever they feel like it for whatever reason whatsoever, and particularly if they're women, the consequences of that action, especially in the immediate short term, are beneficial for them. If you're going to have a relationship, you've got to get a bunch of things right. So the attraction's got to be there. You want to have a woman that you can't keep your hands off her and vice versa. That's critical. Absolutely critical. And what's attractive for you might not be attractive for me and vice versa. You want to get the economic stuff worked out. Yeah. Spend less than you earn. Etc. Etc. Get off. Get over the the trap of you know you deserve it. Don't buy stupid shit. In other words, don't waste your money on stupid shit. You got to get the family thing sorted out, which doesn't just mean children. It also means how you deal with the surrounding family members as well. You've got to set your mark there from the beginning. You've got to create your frame in a, from a position of strength. For instance, you can't let your mother-in-law walk all over you. There's a classic cliche for you to get your head around. And you've got to base the relationship on God and the way that God, in the traditional sense, looked at relationships. Now, the modern church has slipped in this regard and has elevated women in some churches to being in a divine state, which is news to me because, you know, apparently the Bible said we're all fallen. Um... So you've got to make sure that uh, the church you're going to is not cucked uh, and that uh, the woman who's marrying you understands that she worships God and then you. And that's it. Those are the key principles to uh, having a successful marriage in this day and age. That's what I've learned. And um, I've been doing this a while, and 
I've always been pretty fucking good with chicks. Um, but I've made some hideous mistakes. Because... Alright, let me, let me have a look at another. Let's get to the because. Um, Jack over at Sigma Frame put up an article today, how I discovered that I wanted to be married. Um, it's by, oh, it's not by Jack, it's by another guy called Scott. Um, and I, uh, I like this post a lot. I'll link both of these pieces. Um. On the show notes. This guy is basically the same age as me. He's 48. Grew up in the 80s. Teenager there. Um, and first relation, first marriage went down the toilet. He's different than me that he's he got married early on in his 20s. And then got his second relationship in his 30s. Uh, whereas I had my first marriage in my 30s. And now I'm 48. So that's the problem with this stuff as a time marches on. Um, anyway, a couple of things he said in the section called Framing His Experiences. Uh, he said, Roller's absolutely, absolutely right about men loving idealistically. We are the true romantics and the entire culture has it backwards. It was always a standard joke with me and my ex-wife. She used to call me Mr. Romantic. And it was in a, it was in a, a jokey way because apparently, because I wasn't romantic at all. I'm, I'm not the guy for romantic walks on the beach, uh, candlelit dinners, you know, flower petals on the bed. Are you fucking kidding me? You know, I don't want your uh, endless array of cushions on the couch. A couch is something to be sat on. You'll need a couple of cushions for your back, maybe, if your couch isn't any good. If your couch is good, you don't need any cushions. Uh, the same with your bed. You don't need a bunch of cushions on your bed. You need pillows to put your fucking head. Um, but we are romantic in the sense that we, we do men love idealistically. Which means that when we commit, we think, you know, all right, this is where it's going to be at. Um, and so that was what I was talking about on the because. Um, now, what else did they say in this thing? So, all right. So, on, on regards on the fact that that men love idealistically and women love opportunistically, he says this explains, for example, why men are usually the last to know when they are about to be ground up in the divorce grinder. Uh, I consider this to be evidence that men are better at banishing divorce from their minds, which also demolishes that the men are afraid of commitment canard. 
And the reality is they believe that their wives also have banished divorce from their options. And therefore they feel free to work out whatever issues arrive within the context of marriage without fear of divorce. Um, I did precisely this, in, I'm still quoting, precisely this in my first marriage. There was no infidel infidelity, no violence, no drinking drugs, no yelling, none of that stuff. My assumption was that as long as I played by the rules, I was free to work on myself, my relationship under the blanket of total security that the marriage vows provided. Only men do that. That really, that really hit it with me. I was blindsided by my divorce because I knew that things weren't going that great um, with her, but um, I never believed for an instant that she would chuck in everything that we'd strive to build for, build together. Even though, looking back on it, I can see that we just built a relationship based on convenience. Um, but even in, in the in the in the midst of that, I still didn't believe that she'd ever walk out the door. Um, I thought that I thought that she she took she took the vows seriously as I did. I assumed that she took the vows just as seriously as I did, and that was not the case. She took the vows seriously when it suited her to do so, which means that she sincerely believed that she was taking the vows seriously, and then when she didn't feel that she needed them anymore. The thing that got me was when she announced that she was divorcing me. She'd packed her bags, you know, while I was away at work that day. Uh, when I came back, she was just waiting for me sitting on the couch with a car full of her stuff. Uh, and when she announced it, and I couldn't believe it, she got exasperated with me. And she actually got frustrated when I said, you know, when, I, when it was obvious that this was an absolute blow between the eyes and I had no idea that it was coming. She got very frustrated and exasperated. And she actually said, oh, come on. Surely you, sh you knew that this was what was, was going on. I had no idea. He's got a concluding statement on this, uh, on this piece about his wife. Uh, I'm quoting, yesterday, Mikhail, I think that's his wife's name, came home from her emergency room weekend and relayed a story to me. She said that several of the women she works with were having a typical conversation that comes up from time to time. Would you remarry if your husband passed away? Every one of them had the same response. Quote, I could never go through having to train another man. Mikhail reported that she pleaded with these women who seemed like nice people otherwise. She tried to be diplomatic since she has to work with them. Ultimately, her argument was, did he have to train you at all? Scott has taught me so much about life through his masculine viewpoint and I'd be devastated if he was gone. His shoes are too big to fill and that's why I would never remarry. This was greeted with consternation and confusion. How could a woman say such things about a man? They are idiots who cannot do or remember anything right. Um... I left a comment on the post. He also stated in the post that uh, it took him two years to get over the his first his first marriage breakup, his divorce. Um, it's roughly eighteen months, a little over eighteen months since uh, my wife 
drop the divorce hammer on me. Um, and I can say uh, quite confidently that the two-year period sounds about right. Um, I had a guy from work come over yesterday. We sat on my back deck, and he's a pipe smoker, and we smoked a couple of pipes, and uh, I don't know, talked about different things, but the topic of you know how I was going in my divorce, and and he said to me that it was noticeable in the last three or four months um, that I was getting back to my old self. Uh, last year, 2019, was basically a write-off for me in a in a personal sense. Um, that I think I spent the majority of 2019 just uh, holding it together. That's what I did. Um, she just she left me in late October 2018. So 2019 was a very successful year for me in a professional standpoint. Um, and the fact that I was able to be that successful while uh, going through something personal like that is um, is something which I should be proud of, I suppose. Uh, it's easy to forget about your achievements when you're locked into your current day struggle, but that was a good job that I did. Um, so I said on this comment here that my experiences are similar. It's been 18 months since my divorce and I've spent that entire time avoiding women. <clears throat> and I have. The rest of what I wrote is, the part you describe about your wife's conversation with her co-workers is the sum of all fears. It's because it's the new reality. If ever in the future a woman pops up on my future radar, then I'll be supremely zero fucks given just to avoid that awful fate. In fact, I've become more zero fucks given in all the aspects of my life since my divorce. I used to be the life of the party, the small talk king, able to keep all social gatherings going. Now, I don't give a shit. Keep your own conversations going. I'm getting another beer. And... I wrote that this morning and I thought, yeah, yesterday the guy came, good guy, came around. We sat at the back. We spoke, but I... I don't have... I really... If you'd taken that little social interaction from yesterday and put it any time in the past, you know, any time in the past 30 years of my adult life, then the conversation would have been a lot different because I really would have been doing a lot more to move it forward filling up silences not in a jerk off way 
because I've always got on very well with people, but more in a dancing monkey kind of way. Hey, you'll always have a great time with, uh, with Adam. But I've got to the point, and it's probably just in the last few months where I, I don't give a shit anymore about moving the conversation forward. I've learned to appreciate silence. That's one thing, I suppose. A great song is always the notes that the musician has left out. Just like a great book is, you know, the ones where the writer has had time to trim it right back. But it's not just that, it's more in the sense that I'm not prepared to be a dancing social monkey anymore because I don't see the point for it and I have zero fucks left to give. I say it's a combination of those two things. That is... where I've come to in my in my reality. And it doesn't mean we had a nice time yesterday. We spoke about different things and but I I I, I was almost <coughs> excuse me. It was almost sometimes as if I was observing, <coughs> observing myself, having that conversation while I was having it. And he would ask me some stuff about myself and I would answer. But then I wouldn't dance back at him. As an example, he, he said, uh, he's a younger guy and he's trying to make his way. And he, uh, he asked me, you know, what's my favourite book? <coughs> now in the past, I probably would have tried to come up with one. But I just said straight away, I don't have a favourite book. So he was like, oh, he tried to press me in a different way. No, I don't. I don't. And that was it. And there was a book on the table. So I'd been reading before he turned up. He goes, what about that book? And I said, this is a nice book. I don't have a favourite book. Favourite genre? I don't have one now. I just left it at that. This might sound, not sound like a big deal, but in the past, 
I would have used this as a launch pad to go through all sorts of books and I can't be bothered anymore. Because I have zero fucks left to give. I have nothing left to prove to myself. And I really am independent now of the good opinion of other people. And it's taken me 30, <clears throat> 30 years to get to that point. And it might cause people to come to the opinion that that Adam guy is a boring, shitless bastard. Which is absolutely, perfectly fine. In both directions. I'm absolutely, perfectly fine with them thinking that I'm a boring, shitless bastard. And I'm absolutely, perfectly fine with being a boring, shitless bastard. Of course, I won't be that because the definition of a bore in my opinion, is someone who robs you of solitude without providing you with company. I think the boring shitless bastards are generally the ones who are trying to fill the silence. Shoutouts to Captain Capitalism at captaincapitalism.blogspot.com Cappy's a good guy. He's got a bunch of books. They're linked to on my site. I reviewed his, uh, well, it's not really his book. He gave it away to someone else to publish. How Not to Become a Millennial. Um... I was a little bit harsh on one aspect of my review of that book. But based on my uh, Amazon affiliate stats, a bunch of you went out and bought it. So that's good because I think it's a good book. I would just wish that he would have edited it tighter. But that's a gripe that I have with most of Cappy's books. Except The Curse of the High IQ. He kept that one really tight compared to his other ones. Um, but a uh, bunch of you went out and bought it, and good. Because it's got a, it's, it's a, a, all of Cappy's books are truth bombs, but that's like the, the B-52 loaded with uh, nuclear missile truth bomb book, that one. Which means it's digestible in small bites. That's why it took me so long to get through it. Because um, you've got to read the truth bomb. A lot of the truth bombs I already knew myself, but there was still, when you're when you're being bombarded with them, you still, no matter how much of your your, your prior knowledge is, it's, you still got to, yeah, okay, here's some truth bombs. Um. But check out Cappy's site, check out his books. He uh, sponsors 
uh, my podcast and my work. He's got his own podcast as well. He's Arsehole Consultancy Business. And Cappy's one of the good guys. That's what Cappy is. He's one of the good guys. Uh, got a lot of time for him. You know he has his flaws just like anyone else. But uh, uh, when we met up in Louisiana, I enjoyed my conversations with Cappy. I didn't feel the need then to be a dancing monkey, and, and he wasn't a dancing monkey either. So Cappy, uh, Aaron Cleary, sponsor of my podcast, good guy. Go check him out. You can check out my books, Pushing Rubber Downhill, which is about me riding a motorbike across Australia, chasing a girl, and then working out that I don't know shit and ending up in Africa, hiring witch doctors. And Run Guts Pull Cones, uh, uh, that's about a rafting season in the Italian Alps, um, and all the shit that went down, and what it's like to work with hard men in a hard profession. If you like this podcast, you can follow it. That's always good. Uh, you can follow my blog as well, and uh, every time I write a post, which is probably about 20 times a month, you'll get an email letting you know that something's up. And um, this has been uh, episode 241, the zero fucks given episode, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you all have a lovely King's Day. Um, so um, all the best from me. Until next time, ciao.